Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Tom Howard, director of Richard Howard's Oysters. The Howard family has been cultivating oysters around Mersey Island in Essex since the 1700s. Tom, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Well, that's a quite a long tradition to uphold. Uh, I'm sure that uh, there's yeah. been many challenges in the past, but how have you been dealing with the current COVID situation? Yeah, it's been very challenging. Um, <laughs> with the current, I mean, it's, it's really hit our industry hard. Um, being in the food industry, being supplier to a lot of restaurants in London and around the UK, um, at one point we were 97% down in business. So um, we've been struggling to keep ourselves afloat, to be honest. And uh, we're still going. Um, and like I say, our family's been doing this for, well, I'm eighth generation oysterman. So, you know, we've, in those eight generations, we've seen a lot of challenges. But, um, I'm sure this is one of the hardest we've had, really. And what sort of measures have you had to put into place over these past months? Well, I mean, it's that interesting thing of um, kind of capitalism versus um, safety kind of thing. And then as a business, you're trying to make money, but you want to keep people safe. And for me, actually, the thing I've noticed most is the most important thing to me is keeping my staff and my family safe. So in regards to measures, at one point, um, we put everyone on furlough just because we wanted to keep people safe and have not people moving around that much and trying to keep people at home so they could stay as safe as possible. So uh, with the loss, a, a big loss of trade, um, it meant I was working on my own, but I was kind of happy to do that because that meant I could make sure the staff were, because they're on furlough, so they're still getting paid. Um, and I could just keep the business ticking over but make sure that just in my own little bubble, as it was, I was, I was getting everything done myself. Um, now things are a bit different, but it's still about that safety, I feel. I'm very conscious of people's safety and their mental health as well because this has been really tough for everyone. Mm. Um, so, again, it's keeping a small bubble of, of team together, really, and we're working closely, but we're in a very kind of tight-knit bubble and we've had tests as well to know that we're all kind of safe from COVID um, and just keeping everyone kind of as happy and as comfortable as possible in the working environment, um, but at the same time trying to make some money. So it's, it's been a real challenge. I would imagine. Now, do you feel that this is going to have a permanent effect on your business? Yes, I do, actually. And I think the more we've been doing it and going through these past few months trying to navigate this absolutely bizarre and terrifying kind of pandemic is that the business has to change in order to stay in business, but also cope with how things are different in the world around us. And I think permanently it's caused us to think, well, it's time to reassess what we do as a business and time to reassess where things aren't working and where things are working really well. And it's actually helped us. And so the business is definitely going to change and it was already changed a lot. And there's a lot more I want to do to change it, uh, to kind of adapt to the current kind of climate. Um, but I think it's going to be a good thing. It's just going to focus our minds a bit more on where we're doing well and help us just to kind of eliminate those things in the business, which we don't need to do or we've been doing, but 
kind of you've been doing it for so many years and when you really look at it you think why are we doing that we don't need to so yeah it's, it's going to change the business permanently but i actually think that can be a really positive thing now of course we're here to discuss the concept of leadership i always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question what does the yeah. word leader mean to you i think um it means being okay to not know everything um i think a good leader um accepts their vulnerabilities um i spend a lot of time looking at the business and looking at my team and what's going on around us and when i realize there's areas in this business that i don't know the answers to that's where i look to my team to help me find an answer and i think that's a good leader is admitting when you don't know everything and and asking those people around you to support you and help you find those answers. And I think that then builds confidence in the people you work with. And that team then feels trusted and kind of valued for their opinion and what skills they have. And I think a good leader nurtures that. Um, and I say that's a big part of leadership for me is, is doubt. <laughs> and how would you uh, describe your day-to-day -day leadership style? Um, very much all about communication. Um, I think throughout the day, I'm always keen to make sure everyone is communicating well and everyone knows what's going on around them. And I and I'm and I'm communicating with people clearly. Um, so day to day, it's very much very first thing, whatever time of day that is, depending on what we're doing, because our days can start very early in the morning, like half five, six a.m. Um, to seven, eight a.m., depending on what the tides are doing. Um, and whether we have to go out on the water hand-picking oysters or whether we're going to be ashore that day. But as the day begins, um, it's very much about us as a team talking about what the day's going to entail, what challenges we've got, um, and talking through any problems or potential problems we might have, and then talking about the good stuff as well. And then, for me, that then goes through the day, and each part of the day, always keeping updated with the team, because I can't always be hands-on with people all the time. I've got to be at home with, in my office doing some work, um, paperwork or working on sales or working on various complicated bits of paperwork coming out of exporting and all this, um, but always letting the team know that they can get hold of me when they need me mm. to talk things through. So it's very much day-to-day um, -day leadership for me is very much about communicating well and communicating often and people knowing they can and not being scared tell me when things go wrong because I hate that when people feel scared and I'm like there's nothing to be scared of we all we're human and we all um, face challenges in our day-to-day -day kind of work life and we can work it through. Now of course everyone has a different journey to leadership how would you say that you got to yours of course you're in within a family business uh, yeah. where following the uh, role modeling uh, um, signs of your uh, family members the way you got to where you are now or are you more focused on um, uh, circumstance? It's a bit of a mix really because I haven't always stayed within the family business because part of my journey and my desire to kind of grow as a person but also as a leader has been working elsewhere working outside of the family business because otherwise you become too kind of um narrow-minded within just one scenario or one environment so i've worked in places around the world even i've, I've run places um, in new zealand um, and worked in other places in the uk just to not only just 
grow in my career, but explore other areas of my career, but also just um, grow as a leader and look at how other people are doing things and understand how other businesses operate and either thrive or, or fail, really. And I've had some failures in my time as well. Um, so that's been part of it is that openness to seeing other things. But yeah, within the family too, there's been a real sense of learning from my mum and my dad who my mum set up a very successful restaurant and did that while being a full-time mum and made it an incredible place to visit um, for people from around the country and around the world and looking at her leadership skills and her kind of biggest ethos for me was keep it simple whenever you're doing a business whenever you're leading people keep it simple don't try and overcomplicate what you do be very simple and then you're not you're not confusing things too much and with my dad um who still works within the business he's 75 but is refusing to retire um because work is life um it's looking at how he does things and for dad it's his kind of influence on my leadership has been kindness more than anything else i mean that can't always a lot of people say you can't be kind to be in business, but Dad seems to manage it pretty well. Um, and the sense of he's always willing to help others and and help others to to flourish in their careers and in their industry. And if he can help them in any way, he will do that. And I think um, and you kind of see the positives of that, where businesses who we do help sometimes when they need it will then be there to help us if we need it. So I think that's been a really kind of kind of like um, telling part. To my journey um, as I've been growing up um, and becoming more of a leader is is realizing that it's okay to be kind. <laughs> now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But Tom, before I let okay. you go, what does the next twelve months have in store for Richard Howard's oysters? I don't know. <laughs> I think that's from before. Before we saying I don't know, but I think the big part of it is uh, is. Working with oysters is is it's not just about selling a product. It's also about uh, it's very much about sustainability and working with the environment. And oysters are a big part of the environment where I live. And a strong, healthy oyster stock makes a strong, healthy ecosystem where we are, um, and it helps the environment thrive. So the next twelve months, I really see is focusing on making sure we're looking after nature as best we can with all the things that are changing um, and then hopefully transporting that message um, into the people that we we serve so I think for me it's again it's going to be about that kind of environmental side of things over the next 12 months and then as a business over the next 12 months it's going to bring a sense of trying to streamline what we do and become more focused on where things are working and try and make the best of that and ultimately keeping everyone safe that's around me. Well, Tom, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. It's been a pleasure to have you. And of course, we'll have to have you back at some point in the future. That'd be great. Thank you. That was Tom Howard, director of Richard Howard's Oysters. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, 
And you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at, the mo mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up 
doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club Quite. you know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the 
biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that, you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. 
Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out 
that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah, so the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a. Yeah. Uh, very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do. Well, it. surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.